Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 207 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Today you are joining us for our two-part series on diabetes, and in this episode we'll be covering a functional approach to treatment and management. So last episode was much more kind of shock and awe and maybe a little rant based. We really wanted to set the stage on on how the conventional guidelines have steered us wrong, how big of a problem diabetes is in the U.S. and beyond, and how big ag and big pharma definitely don't have our best interests in mind when it comes to diabetes. So in today's episode, we'll really drill down on what you can do in terms of a tangible and practical application about a diagnosis of diabetes or prediabetes, nutrients to focus on for blood sugar control, the role of endocrine disruptors and the microbiome, and so much more. Yes. In last week's episode, we talked a lot about the primary medications used to manage, and we also talked about the disservice of the diabetic diet. Uh, We went through an example day of 180 grams of carbs um, in a calorie-controlled diabetic diet approach, and that is definitely not the naturally nourished approach. Um, I wouldn't put someone with utmost metabolic health, not to mention someone that's dealing with insulin resistance and a metabolic disease such as diabetes, on something with such high of carbs. I really find that to be a stressor to the body. And, you know, we broke down that in many ways and shapes. Today, we will talk a little bit about non-caloric sweeteners and some new research there. And really just the idea of, can you put yourself in a remissive state using diet and lifestyle and um, then taking things more functional on, you know, what are the nutrients required for optimal insulin response? What are other mechanisms of blood sugar control? So a lot to unpack and can't wait to share it all with you guys. This is the action episode. Yes, but before we dive in, if you are a regular podcast listener and you have not gone over to YouTube and subscribe to the Naturally Nourished channel, what are you doing? (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we have been having so much fun making 8 to 12 minute videos on the Naturally Nourished YouTube channel. We recently relaunched a couple months back, and we are so excited to share these videos with you guys, your household, family members, friends. So please return the favor and continue to share these videos via, you know, you can always Uh, copy on that little arrow thing, hold over that, and you can send that as a text message, as an email, you can post it on your social media, and even comment on all the videos. Let us know your favorite parts of them or what videos you'd like us to do. At this point, we have covered so many different topics from the microbiome and how to do a probiotic challenge to why we hate non-caloric sweeteners. We've made the famous keto cheddar biscuits and low-carb chocolate chip cookies, and even talked to you about best cooking uh, equipment and staying clear of non-toxic, non-stick, excuse me, non-stick cookware, instead choosing non-toxic cookware and uh, really the nuances within all of that. Yes. So, so much good stuff. So head on over to YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes, but if you just search YouTube naturally nourished, you will land on our page and you can subscribe right there so that you never miss a video. Yes. Every Thursday we release a new video and the more subscribers, the more we see that y'all are enjoying the content and then we will keep doing it. So yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Um, So before we dig into today's episode, we do have a couple of other episodes that I'd just like to alert you guys to that cover this topic. So 206 was the last one that was very in-depth that we just talked about. Episode 76 was getting to the root of insulin resistance. And then episode 10 was very early on on insulin resistance. 
Um, and episode 99, Ketosis as Medicine, does do a fair bit of mention of diabetes in the context of a ketogenic diet. Absolutely. I think that that one's fantastic in multiple mechanisms. Things like Alzheimer's disease, PCOS, and diabetes and obesity are a big component of a big tool in which the ketogenic diet can really harness that pathology or stop that progression of that disease and maybe even reverse it. Totally. Um, so yeah, first of all, I think it's so important to lay a little foundation of, of hope and acknowledge the fact that diabetes is actually reversible or you can put it into remission if we want to call it that. We wouldn't necessarily say curable per se, um, but the fact that it's reversible, I don't know why it's not being you know shouted from the mountaintops. Yes. And I think the nuances in those terms are if cured, the individual would be able to go to an ad lib diet, meaning not carb controlled diet and not deal with diabetic influence, you know, so their blood sugar would be controlled X, Y, Z. I think that we can see that with aggressive weight loss. uh, But the reality is there's so many other, as you fantastic listeners know there's so many other benefits of carbohydrate control beyond just diabetic remission that there would really be very little reason for you to want to deviate away from a low carb ketogenic diet uh, to experience you know if if you're quote unquote cured and have that capacity of eating you know a standardized american diet per se yeah why would you want to go backwards to what got you there in the first place and if you're feeling good with your brain health and you're seeing an influence on muscle tone and all the other favorable things that come with it i think yeah if it's not broke you keep making the changes so in the conventional model of treatment this was really jaw-dropping to me there was a large study by kaiser permanente and they found that uh, diabetes remission rate of 0.23% with standard of care. And standard of care is the standardized diabetic diet in conjunction with drug therapy. So the status quo approach of how we as a, you know, powerful country with intelligent physicians and clinicians will not reverse the health crisis, the epidemic of diabetes, or it will in 0.23% of the diabetic populations. It's pretty pathetic statistics. And I would state and argue that that means that the standard of care is not appropriate. No, not working. Right. Um, So... You know, diabetes was identified for long as an incurable chronic disease and that the best outcomes possible would be to ameliorate or reduce the symptoms and slow the inevitable progression. Um, You know, the statistics that we see is that approximately 50% of type 2 diabetics will require insulin therapy within 10 years of diagnosis. Uh, We've seen that past diabetics have... um, been dealing with chronic irreversible disease conditions. And my argument would be that if we're stating that 50% of type 2 diabetics need insulin therapy within 10 years, again, then why are we giving them 180 damn grams of carbs a day within the protocol and the standardization of care? That's why they need the insulin therapy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So in 2016, the World Health Organization uh, put out a global report on diabetes and added a section on diabetes reversal. So this was promising. They acknowledged that it can be achieved through weight loss and calorie restriction. So diabetes reversal is this newer-ish term that's found its way into scientific articles, and um, it can be kind of used interchangeable with the term remission. And basically the criteria is that if the A1C, the hemoglobin A1C, that three-month percent of how coated your red blood cells are in sugar, that three-month average, if it stays under the threshold of 6.5 for an extended period of time without the use of glycemic control medications, that this individual would qualify. And we've seen that. In fact, there's really fantastic literature out there. Becky and I in clinic, I would say that Every single active patient, of course, there's always people that fall off. There's always people that have attrition and, you know, maybe they had something change in their household structure or a gnarly divorce or X, Y, Z, and they fell off plan. 
but anyone that is following our plan is currently in a reversal or remission mode. Sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes two years to get them fully off of their medications, but if they are actively staying working with us and maintaining a very low carbohydrate diet, as well as we're monitoring and tracking their micronutrient status and supporting with supplements, and aiding in the microbiome, and they're using the constructs of our 12-week real food keto program that we have seen, I would say, 100% in those active participants of remission. Yes, absolutely. And there is really good data out there by Verta Health, um, and they have over 200 adults ranging in age from 46 to 62 years of age in their intervention group that's using a ketogenic diet. Um, And they looked at a two-year timestamp And they found that at year one, participants in the intervention group lowered their A1C to 6.3 from 7.7 on average in the beginning of the study. And that's 60% of them putting their type 2 diabetes into remission based on those standards of getting under 6.5. So 60% of the population in their study was able to get into that remissive stage at the first year of active treatment. And then in that second year, they had less hands-on in their protocols. They did see a slight elevation to an average of 6.7, but that still even, you know, stays pretty close to that criteria. And, you know, those then were given the opportunity to tighten up lifestyle or go on medication. Um, But the keto diet group did considerably better than the usual care group again, where their A1C actually rose from the 7.7. Some of them saw it come down, but then rise and hit at 7.9 at the two-year mark. And those are the ones that were doing the medication and the standard diet. Yep. So those are the ones that would be you know, prone to that insulin in 10 years recommendation. So again, it it poses the question when we talked last week in the episode of who's funding these organizations and their protocols being biotech and big pharma and really asking if they're looking to see improved outcomes or they're looking for long-term customers. Totally. And we'll get into a little bit more on how you can apply a real food diet for management of diabetes in a little bit. Yes. But I mean, I would just say in the opening point blank that nutritional ketosis can reverse type 2 diabetes by directly reducing blood sugar levels. We see this with that average of that three-month A1C, but we can also see this in our postprandial after-meal blood sugar tests and in our fasted blood sugar levels that come down we see a significant improvement. We can see up to 75% improvement in insulin sensitivity in just weeks from employing a very low carbohydrate diet. And we can see reduced inflammation. So we can see white blood cell count regulating. We can see the high sensitivity C-reactive protein come down. So that CRP marker of inflammation. And what's really cool about this is now not only are you reversing your diabetic diagnosis or in a remissive managed state, but you're also going to be noticing improved health outcomes. We see significant improvement in body fat composition. We see significant improvement in sustainable weight loss, reduced cravings, and the list just goes on. And when you start to see inflammation coming down and you start to see a favorable shift on lipids, like we'll see an increase of HDL, a reduction in triglycerides, this is where we're now hitting on the multiple mechanisms of the disease process in a favorable way. So again, we not only took the diabetic to a non-diabetic status, but now they're at lower risk for heart disease and stroke. Now they're at lower risk for Alzheimer's and dementia. Now they're at lower risk for the other metabolic health conditions. Totally. And we can see rates of weight loss that are comparable to bariatric surgery, which is a recommendation that's on the ADA website, and that would come with its whole host of other complications and nutrient deficiencies and all the things. Most definitely. Okay, so before we head into a little bit more on keto and low carb, let's maybe talk first about some nutrients of focus just for regulating blood sugar and nutrients that are going to be on higher demand when we're insulin resistant. 
Yes. So we talked about what insulin resistance is in depth last episode. So I'm not going to recap on that. Um, But some nutrients that I focus on uh, in the vitamin world is vitamin K as a big influencing factor. And uh, vitamin K2 is going to be the one that is more biologically available and active. This is going to come from our red meat, our wild seafood, and also through our colon. Um, Our gut bacteria is going to manufacture that K2 as well. And then there is the form of vitamin K1 in your leafy greens, in your broccoli, Uh, And vitamin K in general is going to play a big role with how insulin responds in the body. Um, So this is an important player that we would have a big highlight on. Um, So beyond the diet focus there, you would want to look for with your vitamin D supplement if taking and using always a combination of that K1, K2, that's going to prevent the calcification. So when we're looking at heart disease, you know, we're looking at that calcium score as a big risk factor. We see, especially in individuals that have had a risk association of kidney stones or um, stone formation in the gallbladder to have an issue with calcium and oxalate regulation in their body. So if taking vitamin D as a supplement, which a lot of people more now than ever with pandemic, make sure that your vitamin D levels are tested and you're scoring from 50 to 100 and make sure that you're supplementing with a vitamin D dosage that provides that K1, K2. And that's why we opened the vitamin D balance blend uh, in the liquid because the capsule form has 5,000 IUs of vitamin D and this may be appropriate for some people for long-term daily use. But for other individuals, they'll easily be at you know 86 or something like that in their vitamin D levels. And so they can do one of two things. They can either reduce to their vitamin D balance blend three times a week and then maintain with you know sunshine and the sun exposure to, to continue to support that optimal level or they can switch to the vitamin D liquid balance blend, which you can start with infants all the way up through children and dose based on their weight, but it provides flexible dosing where you're getting 2000 IUs per the full ML. Totally. And then I think a multivitamin, a quality multivitamin would be a good place to start too for you know maximizing vitamin K. If you don't know if you're deficient, just a good place to kind of cover your bases. Yes, so that's why we ensure that vitamin K is found in the multi-defense, both with and without iron, and also in the multi-avail mama. And another reason why that liquid vitamin D balance blend provides that vitamin K, because that is not a nutrient that we have in the multi-avail kids. So especially for those children that have metabolic health concerns, might have a little bit more of that belly fat or you know stubborn metabolism, This is really important because when we're looking at vitamin K status, it can directly increase our beta cell mass, which is the area of the pancreas that actually produces insulin. And we see that optimal vitamin K levels actually can aid in insulin concentration and promote the release of adiponectin, which is a hormone that directly works with our adipocytes or our fat cells to increase sensitivity to insulin. So vitamin K is a real big powerhouse in the sense that it actually helps with insulin production as well as insulin sensitivity. And then chromium is another one that we talk about with regards to insulin sensitivity as well. Yes. I mean, chromium helps the way that insulin attaches to the cell receptors and it increases the glucose uptake into our cells. We've seen that deficiency in chromium can play a role driving insulin resistance. And there have been double-blind randomized clinical trials demonstrating dose-dependent benefits on type 2 diabetics. So I think chromium is probably the most well-researched of all of these. Vitamin K, I think, is equally as important, but maybe not as well-known. And I think this is where we think of like, chromium is very rich in broccoli, um, but we also see in green beans, but we also see this with the cinnamon connection for chromium of helping with if you're going to add that to your Greek yogurt or in your coffee brew during the day, add it to your protein shake as a great way to enhance that um, also metabolic impact. And we've seen chromium have favorable impact on lipids and blood sugar metabolism. 
Totally. And then I think another maybe unknown would be carnitine in this arena. Yeah. So we talk about carnitine as an amino acid in its ability to aid in the body to produce ketones. So carnitine is in our boost and burn liquid uh, and that we use so that the body can actually create from the fat ketone bodies. It aids in fueling the mitochondria and supporting that conversion process so that you're able to make ketones effectively from your fat. And that's why we're always using the boost and burn instead of like exogenous ketones. I definitely wouldn't recommend exogenous ketones in the diabetic population. Um, There could be some potential positive outcomes in studies, but that would likely be seen from the body fat loss itself. And again, I think it creates a little bit too much of that false perception of quote unquote safety of, you know, you can, you can take BHB products or, you know, prove it or whatever those ketone products are with the exogenous ketones and be in a state of ketosis without having tight carbohydrate restriction. And for a diabetic, they need to reduce the carbohydrate intake as well as the mechanisms of the benefit of producing ketones. Wouldn't you agree? Sure. Totally. And and that would be a great tool for an individual who's transitioning into a ketogenic diet, kind of looking for a little bit of a leg up. The boost and burn. Yeah, most definitely. So yeah, the carnitine not only aids in ketone production, but it also has been shown to have favorable influence on diabetics in the world of neuropathy. So it can produce, it can reduce pain. Um, Because it works with fatty acid metabolism, it can aid in neurological functions, supporting a better protective coating on our neurons, and also has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity and increasing the glucose uptake. So that's a big one there. And I would also say lipoic acid is in the world of enhanced glucose uptake. That's an antioxidant. um, And we do use that in the multi-defense as well. Um, This plays a big role with also neuropathy. It can actually recoat the myelin sheath. So when I'm working with like multiple sclerosis, we will do higher dose lipoic acid. Uh, Biotin is a B vitamin that I would definitely highlight. Uh, This is going to stimulate your glucose-induced insulin secretion. So it aids in also that pancreatic beta cell response to glucose elevation. And we have seen that biotin can help to improve glycemic control. So often we'll add in a B-complex on top of the baseline multivitamin that a patient is, is using if they are dealing with diabetes because we see influence from biotin b12 is a big one that we see and especially if you were on metformin Mm -hmm. metformin depletes b12 so this is what can further drive or exacerbate the neuropathy and is not often discussed you know we also see b12 depletion from metformin really depleting the mitochondria or the energy cells of our body so we can deal with chronic fatigue syndrome Um, so layering on a quality b complex can be really supportive for that biotin, B12, and even nutrients like niacin and inositol. Um, Inositol plays a big role in blood sugar metabolism, and B3 or niacin also plays a big role with the way that insulin binds. Totally. And I know inositol has been studied at least in gestational diabetes to have really profound outcomes um, and potentially combining that with some magnesium, I think would be another supplement recommendation as well. Yes. Um, You know, magnesium is often depleted by diabetic drugs as well, and it's also depleted in stress. And we see that magnesium when deficient can reduce insulin sensitivity or drive that insulin resistance. And we can also see that playing a role with wound healing as well as blood sugar and blood pressure control in diabetics. Okay, so definitely starting off with a quality multi and then you know potentially layering on doing some micronutrient testing down the road once you've kind of got the real food diet rocking to just see where you could optimize. Yeah, and you know, the way I would kind of consider the layering on is remembering that that vitamin K is made in the colon. So we'll talk a little bit more today about microbiome and how you could dig deeper. Um, So that's always something to support. Also because diabetics tend to be more immune compromised, that slow wound healing that we discussed last week in the episode. And um, so considering where your microbiome is at, but I think boost and burn would actually be like right there with a B complex, our B complex and relax and regulate as the second line of defense beyond a multivitamin. Sure. Um, what about things to avoid? Let's cover 
endocrine disruptors. We covered in last episode avoiding high carb in the diet. Yeah, I think um, that's clear now. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit about endocrine disrupting chemicals. Yes. So unfortunately, these are ubiquitous in our modern society, meaning they're just found everywhere. And the body is not very effective at detoxifying these hormone disruptors. So we can see endocrine disruptors in our perfumes, our pesticides, and our plastics when we're looking at kind of sources. So that means in the world of pesticides, we can see this uh, in a lot of our produce and especially in a lot of our processed foods. You know, don't disconnect the idea that corn, as we talked about farm subsidies, right, last week, uh, corn, soy, and gluten gluten are going to have higher pesticide residue than many crops. So, you know, even beyond like your clean 15 and your dirty dozen from the environmental workers group of what produce items are safe, you have to imagine that your processed foods are going to be even higher laden with these compounds because they're really going to be condensed. Um, so like we said, it's really difficult to avoid anything from the corn, gluten, and soy. And those crops that are GMO, so if you're looking at soy lecithin or soybean oil or maltodextrin um, or corn fiber as a filler in some of these keto products, these very well are genetically modified. They do not have to be labeled as so. And if so, they're that Roundup Ready, which means higher glyphosate, which is a really harmful neurotoxin and endocrine disrupting compound. So buying certified organic when possible and getting close to whole real food is going to be the best way to modify in the diet because these endocrine disruptors can influence our sex hormones so they can drive infertility and sexual dysfunction they can interfere with our thyroid driving Hashimoto's and hypothyroid and they can interfere with our pancreas as a gland that regulates hormone and interfere with the insulin response driving and perpetuating diabetes totally and and you know even taking it to the extent of you know cleaning out products in the home and looking at, you know, what you're storing things in, what you're cooking with, maybe using, you know, glass mason jars instead of plastic drinking vessels um, or switching over to a stainless steel water bottle versus the disposable plastic ones can be really good influence too. Um, And then I'd suggest layering on, you know, once we've started to clean up the diet, started to see some weight loss, once we've seen about 10% or so of body fat loss, our 10 day real food detox would be a really, really good tool to kind of wring out and clean up some of that damage. Yeah. And I would say 10% of total body weight loss, not body fat, because that would be really dynamic. Sorry. No, it's that would be a lot. That would be really good. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, once you see 10% of your body weight loss, then you are liberating these toxins from your body fat stores. Uh, I just got a really cool testimonial this week from an individual that is on day nine of her 10 day detox and she's down seven pounds and she said, She's so obsessed with the Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs that they are accompanying her morning coffee and she's reduced her caffeine and um, notices such a clean energy source from just having that liver support. And we notice hand in hand, both the influence of the nutrients in the Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs supporting the liver. So the liver is a better gland at regulating that glycogen or blood sugar storage, as well as the ketone production, but also removing the endocrine disruptors having a twofold influence on blood sugar control, both with reducing blood sugar dumping, enhancing ketone production, and reducing that insulin resistance. Totally. And then circling back, we talked about it a little bit with um, the role of vitamin K and and even in digging in with B12 as a nutrient support and biotin, actually. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Um, there's a lot there. Let's talk about the role of the microbiome specific to obesity and diabetes. Yeah, so there is now a lot of compelling literature out there that recognizes the multi-mechanistic effects of probiotics. We had an awesome episode back in 198 on um, probiotics and the sterility hypothesis. So definitely check that out to cover some really good research. 
Um, but there is a big connection with metabolic disorders, and we do see altered gut microbia in obese individuals as well as individuals that have metabolic conditions. So individuals that have less favorable insulin response, uh, less thermogenesis or body temperature regulation and calorie burn, uh, hindered glucose metabolism and lipid metabolism, as well as an influence on that parasympathetic nerve activity, which is that, again, regulatory safe place, which regulates our uh, digestive function, our satiety, our hormone function, and that fight or flight response. Um, so we've seen that particular strains of gut flora can actually enhance these influences in the body on our metabolism. And we see in a dysbiotic gut that we can see more prone blood sugar dysregulation, increased body fat, and less thermogenesis or less caloric burn. The lactobacillus and the bifidobacterium strains have shown to actually supply vitamins to the body, including vitamin K and biotin and B12, as well as even B5 and folate and riboflavin. So a lot of the B vitamin metabolism is coming secondarily from the gut. And we see those same two strains that we really um, champion in our probiotic line, which are in the Restore Baseline probiotic and doubled, no, quadrupled down in the targeted strength probiotic, the lactobacillus and bifido. And I just want to mention, because I get asked this often, and then maybe you can geek us out, Becky, on some of the um, compelling literature out there in particular, but um, I'm often asked about soil-based organisms, and you know, um, I think there's some misinformation out there about lacto and bifidobacterium only being present in the small intestine and that's just not true um, becky and i run stool tests and we run functional physician ordered stool tests in our clinic through genova diagnostics or doctor's data and we see in the stool in the fecal matter presence or growth of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium and so it's not only residing in the small intestine and I have seen, when I've played myself personally with spore-based probiotics, I have not seen clinical outcomes or efficacy. I actually saw increased bloating in myself when I did a challenge with them. And I have not seen in my autoimmune population or my inflammatory bowel population favorable outcomes when compared to a lacto and bifido strain. I just feel that they have stood the test of time. Now, based on your brand of your lacto and bifido, maybe it doesn't have guaranteed strain ID, maybe it doesn't have guaranteed colony forming units. So there's always that in the world of supplements, but I'm full on team lactobacillus and bifido for most of the areas of focus. And that's what's in the kids biotic as well. Totally. Like you said, I think they've stood the test of time and, and we've seen both clinically and in so much research that there is benefit. And then further connecting just gut microbiome and type 2 diabetes, there have been several research reviews that look at the connection of the gut microbiome. So looking at several studies that have reported gut microbiome dysbiosis can be a factor in rapid progression of insulin resistance. So actually speeding up that process of becoming diabetic um, and that rapid progression accounting for 90% of diabetes cases worldwide. 90%. Wow. Uh -huh. So, you know, that's, that's, we talked a little about gastroparesis and the chicken and egg connection there of how gastroparesis often happens with mismanaged diabetics where their elevated blood sugar levels influence the peristalsis or the pumping of the gut. And there's basically with the word paresis, paralysis of the gastric pouch. And so food sits in the belly longer and we're set up for more SIBO, more candida, and that can perpetuate that dysbiosis, which perpetuates dysregulated blood sugar or elevated blood sugar levels and perpetuates the prognosis, you know, the, the pathology of the disease. So I think that doing housekeeping and being proactive with like the beat the bloat cleanse, um, also probably one of the multi-mechanisms of why berberine, like our berberine boost sure. would be a favorable daily go-to to just keep that dysbiosis regulated. So maybe taking the berberine boost one twice daily ongoing, but doing that beat the bloat cleanse twice a year would be a very favorable influence. The fact that that accounts for 90% of diabetes cases as a contributing factor. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we see research that demonstrates that the antibiotics and xenobiotics
probiotics or the sterilizing compounds in the diet, um, along with NSAIDs, can strongly affect the gut microbiome and promote dysbiosis and thus promote diabetes. Totally. So I think this is an emerging area of research and, and definitely one to watch, but you know, getting on a quality probiotic and then incorporating probiotic rich foods into the diet, if you're not doing that already, would be a really great first line of defense. Yep. So both by harnessing that symbiotic gut, you're reducing the dysbiosis that drives the diabetes, but you're also enhancing your body's production of these nutrients, the vitamin K, the biotin, all those B vitamins we mentioned to support your insulin response. Okay. And then digging a little bit deeper into diet, let's talk about considerations of ketosis. That's definitely where we have you headed if, if <laughs> you haven't gotten that already, but keto Big can surprise. even have you know, favorable, favorable impact on the microbiome. So really all of these mechanisms that we've gone through so far. Most definitely. So, I mean, the first thing that I do in pretty much all areas across the board is I cut carbs out or down at least. Um, and we consider a ketogenic diet. So you know that that's the foundation of the anti-anxiety diet protocol. And that is really where we start with many different, again, disease conditions or, or undesired symptoms. But specifically, when we're looking at diabetic control, we know that elevated blood sugar levels predominantly come from excessive carbohydrate consumption. So it's just a very clear-cut intervention. And by lowering the carbohydrate intake, we lower the insulin demand, which helps to create insulin sensitivity. Again, we can see this enhanced insulin sensitivity of over 75% in just weeks of carbohydrate control. Uh, and then when we get that insulin sensitivity, the cell receptors become less inflamed, less abused from that excessive hyperinsulin or that excessive insulin from the excessive carb intake. And we start to see weight loss. We start to see instead of blood sugar spikes and crashes, more of like a speed bump world down to a very low regulated blood sugar with consistency of a quality ketogenic diet. And then, you know, layering on something like intermittent fasting, I think could be an appropriate tool as well. As long as you're being monitored, if you're on a medication, you know, that would be a consideration to um, discuss with your practitioner for sure. But that could be another tool to help to accelerate some of these outcomes. Right. I mean, I think the carb control is one that you can do even before lowering your medication. And we talked last episode of, you know, coordinating with your practitioner if you're getting low blood sugars and saying, I don't want to eat a carb to raise my blood sugar up. I would like to reduce my medication. And if your doctor is not willing, then you need to find a new doctor. Sure. Because I first want you to control your carbs before you'd bring in intermittent fasting, especially if you are on a medication, right? So hopefully at this juncture, you know, we've seen in study after study after study when comparing a low fat diet or just a calorie controlled diet, it's always the low carbohydrate diet that has the more dynamic reduction in medication and complications and more favorable lab outcomes in study after study after study when we're looking at diabetes and obesity. So bring the carbs under control, play with nutritional ketosis. And then if you are on an oral hypoglycemic drug, um, so this would be like taking metformin at bed, you know, and, and then you're trying to fast. So that drug's been going out for eight to 12 hours, especially if you're taking then a morning dosage and not eating. Um, you know, that's where sometimes too high of dosage can keep people waking in the middle of the night with sweat sure. because they're dropping to dangerously low levels. And I would say that that's not a symptom of diabetes. That's a symptom of medication side effect. Sure. Right. Medication excess that needs to be lowered. That's iatrogenic yep. influence. And that means medically induced complications. So definitely, I think intermittent fasting has such promising outcomes. The best way to really resolve diabetes or get in that remissive state is to sensitize your insulin. And so you can sensitize your insulin by reducing your carbohydrates, but you get further sensitization by just not eating. <laughs> it's the truth, right? So when we eat, we're dinging the doorbell of our insulin response saying, oh, you got to get some, you got to get the fuel into the cells. You got to get the fuel into the cells. So if you rest that process with intermittent fasting, we can see inflammation going down. We can see enhanced um, lean body mass and muscle sparing effects. We see HGH go up. Um, we can see a significant influence 
on our liver's ability to you know break down that excessive fat and produce ketones and we can see insulin levels coming down even more favorably so i find this to be a great tool once the individual has gotten off the blood sugar roller coaster so i would just suggest that if, if you're still medication managed and you're getting 200s ever or even over 160 with your glucose monitor then wait to fast because let's get your blood sugar controlled get your medication down and then let's take it next level and and then you can maybe further reduce your medication once you've employed the fasting totally and then beyond that um, we alluded to a little bit in the prior episode ditching non-caloric sweeteners so these this is a world that you know has been regarded as quote-unquote safe for diabetics and even you know a lot of the products created for diabetics quite frankly yeah an industry i would say Uh exactly i mean i remember as a diet tech you know the diabetic condiment pack (laughs) the silverware has its own condiment pack with it for diabetics and you know the little sticker on the tray so you pull the one with the you know NutraSweet or equal or whatever the other one is that i can't think of off the top of my head right now um splenda yep and um that was you know all the rage then and and now there's the halo effect of the non-caloric sweeteners that are quote-unquote natural so we're talking swerve and stevia and monk fruit and erythritol and you know my big perspective on this and and we'll link a episode that i don't know the number off the top of my head but real food keto and why non-caloric sweeteners suck um, is multi-mechanistic but one of them is that these non-caloric sweeteners um, the sugar alcohols are very disruptive to our gi tract they cause bloating distension um, loose watery stools which can throw off our microbiome um, then the rest of them if they aren't sugar alcohols like the stevia um, those have been shown to be bacteriostatic and so they can actually sterilize the microbiome Beyond the microbiome, there are taste receptors on our tongue called GLP-1, and these can interfere with the way that our insulin production and release works. So some individuals will actually release insulin in response to that taste of sweet, and they'll go hypoglycemic and have a blood sugar crash, which leads them to eating so that they can feel regulated. Um, You know, we've seen studies of people having increased body fat with eating non-caloric sweeteners. And the other element is just that Pavlov's dog effect of the taste association and also the addictive tendency, behavioral more so, of, uh, you know, ensuring that sweet is something that's on the menu per se of, you know, anytime you go to a baby shower or a wedding, you're going to want cake because you're used to having your sugar-free sweetener in your coffee every day and your brain and body is wired to think that sweet is a safe flavor profile. Totally. And actually we have a YouTube video out on what is a whole food and why non-caloric sweeteners suck. So that would be a really good place to get kind of a bite-sized breakdown of some of the research that's out there, or maybe something to share with a family member who is just hooked on their non-caloric sweeteners. Yes. And then there was a new study you pulled, Becky, for this, right? Looking at the non-caloric sweeteners and dysregulation of satiety signaling. So as I mentioned, we've seen study after study to show increased calorie intake. Um, But we can see in the individuals on that microbiome, levels of, for instance, butyrate tested in the stool um, to be lower in individuals that have non-caloric sweeteners. And butyrate is very protective against colon cancer. When we talk about a fuel source of short-chain fatty acids, these provide us energy. In fact, they play a role as a substrate in ketone production. That's what beta-hydroxybutyrate is. And so again, if you're looking to use fat as fuel, you definitely don't want to use the non-caloric sweeteners that are going to reduce the outcomes on your microbiome and lower that butyrate in the colon. Yes, and I think you know the kind of conventional word around this has been that non-caloric sweeteners are neutral and we're just finding more and more so that quite frankly they're not and can have deleterious effects on the microbiome on some of those other mechanisms and actually you know perpetuate obesity and insulin resistance and then you know there's again the protective effects that ban that that back and forth chicken and egg of we've seen butyrate for instance also have favorable antimicrobial peptides that can compete against dysbiosis so you know if you're sterilizing the microbiome and then you don't have this protective player to defend then you're really setting up yourself for that dysbiosis which creates more of the elevated blood sugar levels and down the line the need for insulin 
Totally. Vicious cycle for sure. And we'll link some more kind of emerging research in that area as well. Um, so what about the role of stress? I think that's a big one that is often overlooked. And we talked a little bit in last episode about the role of cortisol, our main stress responding hormone as a glucocorticoid. Yes. So when you do put out that cortisol, you are going to see an increase of blood sugar circulating in the body. And also just a mechanism of a fight or flight response, the liver dumps glucose into the bloodstream. That's part of the fight or flight response. And so both immediate in a stress response and also from that cortisol hormone. And then over time, that cortisol drives more VAT or visceral adipose tissue, which drives the insulin resistance and less insulin sensitivity. We know that cortisol also interferes with adiponectin, or again, our body's ability to break down fat and create that insulin sensitivity. That's where that vitamin K helped out with, remember. So the fight or flight stress response has both acute and chronic unfavorable influence on blood sugar metabolism. And that's not even mentioning the behavioral element, which I should call out, because when someone is under high stress, they're often depleted in serotonin and in GABA and in dopamine. So they don't have their landing gear for their stress response, and they don't have their bliss reward-seeking response. And so they're depleted and they're looking for a pick-me-up. And I always say, you know, stressed spelled backwards is the word desserts. So many people go for that escape, that food coma, and that only perpetuates this dysglycemia or this, you know, blood sugar imbalance in the body. Totally. Definitely some multiple mechanisms that stress can influence. Yes. So before we talk about some food as medicine wrap-ups and tools, let's go into our mid-roll of ourselves, which is the Naturally Nourished Supplement (laughs) line, and just tell listeners, I know we've dropped a couple faves, but let's just kind of talk a moment on why Naturally Nourished Supplements is superior to anything you can find in the market, and also uh, some of the top maybe five or six highlights of consideration for diabetic prevention and remission. Yes, so we formulated the Naturally Nourished Supplement line to provide you guys with super high quality tools that are free of toxins and additives and all that gunky stuff that you can find in other off-the-shelf supplements that are not third-party assessed. I think testing is a really important area to focus on when you're talking about taking a high-quality supplement and spending your money on one of these formulas is that, you know, when you get something off the shelf, you don't always know what you're getting or if active ingredients are in the stated dosage. And also, I would say, right, beyond ensuring that our products are clean, they're also effective and clinically so. So the dosage within our supplements will often be four to six times higher than you'd find of the counterpart on over-the-counter options. And the mechanism of action by the synergy of ingredients that we put together further enhances the bioavailability. So rather than doing like the cheapo calm magnesium product at Walgreens or Target, you're using relax and regulate, which does not have a laxative form of your magnesium that's just washing out through your colon and probably disrupting your microbiome. You're going to be getting magnesium bisglycinate, which is a neuromuscular influence, which crosses the blood brain barrier and tells the brain to stop stimulating that cortisol. It also enhances the release of your neuromuscular tension and reducing jaw tension and teeth clenching, as well as the tension that you hold in your neck and shoulders. And the magnesium bisglycinate is also more effective at blood sugar metabolism. And that's paired with the myo-inositol, which has sexual hormone balancing effects and insulin sensitivity. So doing that over something like Calm product is gonna be far superior. So the highlighted uh, focused ingredients that I would say, or focused formulas that I would say for blood sugar metabolism is first and foremost, you need a multivitamin. So choose between multi-defense or multi-defense with iron. Use iron if you are a menstruating female or you have known anemia or iron deficiency. Otherwise, just do the multi-defense. As we said, that has a great complex of Bs in there, that has that vitamin K in there, and an antioxidant blend, which is really important because 
all of the complications of diabetes are driven by oxidative stress to the body from sugar breaking down the antioxidant capacity. So multi-defense would be a great tool as a starting point. Then if you're dealing with fatigue um, and if you're trying to do a ketogenic diet, I would bring in the boost and burn. This is gonna be the best way to enhance ketone production. You're also going to get that carnitine, which aids in body fat metabolism and also aids with that insulin response. The next line of defense would be do the probiotic challenge with the Restore Baseline Probiotic to assess your microbiome. So there's a protocol on AllieMillerRD.com under Learn Protocol Probiotic Challenge. Get the Restore Baseline Probiotic, follow the protocol so you can see if your gut is dysbiotic and you need to do the Beat the Bloat six-week cleanse, or if you have a symbiotic gut and you can just take that Restore Baseline as your insurance policy and eat probiotic-rich foods. What would be a fourth one to consider, Becky? I would probably add on our EPA DHA extra, which I think by the time this episode comes out should be the new reformulated, one. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, most definitely. Um, and having to take less capsules overall, which is always a big win. But just because there are so many mechanisms of, of that inflammatory cascade with diabetes and insulin resistance, I think that would be a fabulous one to help to you know prevent some of those other cardiovascular side effects and just generally reduce inflammation in the body. Yeah, and when we were talking last episode about connection of pandemic and cytokine storms, mm-hmm. you know, when we think of the influence of inflammatory mediators, omega-3 fatty acids are really fantastic at regulating that and also bringing down triglycerides and helping with that insulin sensitivity. So I think that's a great choice to throw in there. And then I would say you might consider the thyroid optimizer if you're looking for weight loss because that has ingredients that have clinical effects in body fat metabolism, which would further help with insulin sensitivity, especially for someone that has a history of hypothyroid. There are minerals in there like chromium and zinc that also are very supportive for blood sugar metabolism and mood stability. Um, And then the other one I'd consider, if maybe not the hypothyroid world, would be adding in the B-complex. And the last one I'll mention is berberine boost. I mean, berberine, like I said, it both can aid as an oral hypoglycemic on its own. So when we're weaning someone in clinic off of metformin, I always layer in berberine in that process. And at half dose of the cleanse, one twice daily, you're going to get that blood sugar lowering effect um, and also regulate your microbiome without over sterilizing it. Totally. There's some really compelling research about berberine being as effective as metformin without the side effects. Yeah, it will not deplete those B vitamins. It will not hinder your mitochondria. In fact, it can enhance your microbiome and that butyrate status. So definitely cool things when you use food as medicine. And that's my last close in our ad. And then we'll talk food food. Um, It's just that when your body is in a dysfunctional state and you're looking to optimize and thrive, give your body something that it requires to function. All of these nutrients have demands and have biochemical processes that your anatomy and physiology require for your body to work. So start upstream versus downstream with food as medicine versus medication, which does have harmful side effects. Yes, absolutely. So there you have it in terms of our supplement recommendations. When we get to be the sponsor, we get to, you know, talk about all of them. In somewhat Um, of an organized fashion. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's put this together in terms of just some food as medicine recommendations. So taking together maybe some of the nutrients that we've highlighted of focus, um, maybe let's play with a sample day for a diabetic that we feel would be appropriate versus what we listed in episode 206 of like multiple slices of bread at every meal there were there were four or five slices of bread and one of the meals had a slice of toast with jam and um cracked wheat uh cereal and (laughs) yeah no um interesting enough i discovered as a cde a certified diabetes educator that gluten actually, because for so long it was recommended the higher fiber, the better. And that's kind of where the world of net carbs came in. Um, You know, net carbs is deducting your total carbohydrates, deducting the fiber, and then getting that that balance number. So there were all these like dream pastas and um, all these different products that used inulin and, and, you know, these FOSs and would increase the wheat germ. And the higher whole wheat products, like the pasta that I'd put my diabetics on, whole wheat pasta instead of white pasta, 
all of their postprandial reads would actually show up with higher blood sugar levels. And I couldn't put it together until I fell on a research study that showed that our salivary enzymes actually can break down gliadin more rapidly. So the protein in gluten in a concentrated form can actually have a more dynamic blood sugar spike regardless of the fiber impact because the fiber doesn't hit until the gastric pouch when that breakdown is occurring. But the influx of the salivary enzyme actually was creating dynamic blood sugar spikes. So I think that's really interesting and that's why we can't do this blinders of net carbs being the the better choice. We just want to use whole foods and look at total carbs because many net carb products are going to have added cornstarch, and some of those other really mm-hmm. processed ingredients that don't serve the body favorably. So that's my first thing in your food is medicine plan. Don't use processed products and don't look at net carbs. Look at total carbs. And I would have your day range at around 60 to 75 grams of carbs for a diabetic. And then you'd go tighter, like 30 grams of carbs or less if you wanted to employ a ketogenic diet. And then based on your body's insulin sensitivity, you may be able to over time, like in eight weeks or 12 weeks, liberate to 30 to 45 grams of carbs and hang out there. So for breakfast, you could do two uh, to three eggs with half of an avocado. You could throw in some uh, sauteed vegetables like spinach and bell peppers into that. Um, and that should work as is. If you needed a little bit more satiety, you could add, um, at, well, let's put a carb with everything for the example, do low glycemic. So a cup of berries would be fine with that. Sure. And that'd be great. Uh, the antioxidants in berries support your vascular integrity. So very supportive for the diabetics and also favorable polyphenols for your microbiome. Um, and then the meal two, I would say definitely don't be a frequent eater. So give yourself, you know, four to six hours between your meals. So meal two, I would definitely recommend getting two to three cups of greens in a day. So this would be a beautiful place for a midday salad, maybe with some cucumber and tomatoes and olive oil and red wine vinegar and salt and pepper. Uh, we could do some canned tuna with some chopped olives and celery and some like primal kitchen mayo, like an avocado oil based mayo. Um, on top of that, so that'll give you a good 42 grams of protein in that can. Um, nice omega-3 fatty acids. You're getting your leafy greens, so you're getting that vitamin K1 in there. Um, and then the healthy polyphenols from the olive oil. Uh, and then that individual could top that with some, like half of a pear sliced up on there could work really well, or a piece of fruit, like a peach in season or something like that uh, at that same sitting. And then that evening meal could look like a ribeye with Brussels sprouts and some grilled asparagus and maybe a half cup of roasted sweet potato and a small glass of red wine. And that whole day would still be within that 60 to 75 grams of carb mode. Um, It would provide a lot of antioxidants, a good balance of carbs, protein, and fat, and a lot of food as medicine support. And it sounds so much more delicious and satiating than the American Diabetes Association recommendation. Oh my gosh. Roast beef sandwich with um, American cheese slice. No, thank you. And a bag of chips and skim milk. Yeah. No, thanks. Um, (laughs) And then for the individual going low carb, we would just take out those carb choices that we had added on. If you're going keto. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So taking low carb. Yep. So taking out the fruit choice and taking out the starch at dinner, you'd pretty much be there. And I like tried to force the stone fruit peach in there at lunch, you know, so those aren't even required. And um, you might even find more calorie restriction as an option once your blood sugar levels are controlled, where then you employ that you know, 16-8 fasting where you only have two meals instead of all three that I mentioned. Or you might do two meals and a protein shake like we do with our keto class a lot where they're using unsweetened almond milk, a tablespoon of almond butter, two teaspoons of cacao, a pinch of red real salt, and a scoop of naturally nourished protein, maybe a cup or two of spinach. And that makes a really simple midday protein shake, which still has great antioxidant capacity. And you're getting those immunoglobulins in the grass-fed way. So great food is medicine support and all whole real foods. Yes, absolutely. So as you can see, you can get a lot of diversity. I mean, there's so many things we could swap out. You could use any recipe in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook, which has 80 plus keto friendly gut health supporting 
microbiome boosting, mood balancing recipes that aid in also metabolic health and would drive diabetic remission. And remember, this includes the world of real food sweeteners. So if you're looking for a guide, I would say the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook is a best first line defense. It has so much information and I think is a great launch pad to food as medicine. And if you're looking for a program to support your outcomes, definitely check out our 12-week virtual food as medicine ketosis class. The fall round of the program is going to be pre-recorded because Becky is on maternity leave, but it is just as valuable and you actually get two additional hours of me. I will be doing two live Q and A's with you guys at class two and at class five, and it will have all of the pre-recorded six live classes all of the materials that will teach you beyond blood sugar control and how to drive diabetes in remission or never face the world of diabetes, how to balance whole body health. We dig into hormones, we dig into detox, we dig into the microbiome and adrenals and so much more. So I hope if you have not yet that you will consider a spot in the program. Uh, we will put a link in the show notes. It is AllieMillerRD.com slash ketosis hyphen class. And we hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.